if you look at the U.S. federal government, uh, obviously it's kind of moving backwards uh, during the Trump administration, um, uh, which is partly you know explaining California's attempt to, to push the envelope uh, a bit in terms of these aspirations. But I think the idea that policy could be lagging is is um, a strong possibility, especially with autonomy, uh, where I think regulators really don't know what to do with it, and they really don't. Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. My guest today is Dr. James Salee, an associate professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and a research associate of the Energy Institute at Haas. We're going to be talking about his recent blog post, the road to 100% zero emission cars. So James, Gavin Newsom wants to electrify transportation in, in California, both light duty uh, vehicles, but also, and I think this is a point that's often ignored, medium and heavy duty commercial vehicles as well, because not only are they a source of greenhouse gas emissions, a significant source, but also uh, a fair amount of, uh, uh, they consume a fair amount of fossil, you know, gasoline and diesel. So that's really critical. Uh, what's the plan to achieve electrification of transportation in California? Uh, it's good that you ask it that way. What's the plan? I think what we have right now is a vision or a goal, uh, and the plan is to be determined. Uh, so what, what California did last month was uh, the governor came out with his executive order, which is a couple pages long and uh, essentially just states a series of goals and says, we want to have complete electrification, or actually it doesn't say electrification per se. It says that they want to have zero emissions. And when they say zero emissions, um, what they mean is not zero emissions the way an economist would think about it, um, but zero tailpipe emissions. Um, there's a regulatory definition in California for what is zero emissions. And that would include all electric vehicles. And I say it doesn't, that's not what an economist would call a uh, zero emissions vehicle because of course electricity creates emissions. Um, but naturally, the vision of a future is that we'll have um, vastly more uh, clean energy um, and that that'll be feeding the transportation sector. And I think that's um, a natural uh, a vision of how to decarbonize um, the future. Um, but what we've done in California then is say, state out a set of goals. So we want to have um, a, a, a zero emissions fleet. Um, by 2035 um, for passenger cars um, and then a little further out um, for medium and heavy duty trucks uh, as well. And the goals that the governor stated was to have all new vehicles sold by those target years be 100% zero emissions vehicles. Um, and so it's the, the goals that have been stated out are specifically about the new vehicle fleet, um, which doesn't say anything about how to deal with the existing fleet or used vehicles. Um, that will still be on the road and, and um, spewing out pollution long past those target dates. Um, but what they've said is a vision for um, moving towards a cleaner transportation sector that starts um, with uh, regulating the new vehicle market, um, which is a natural way to do it, but not the only way you might approach the problem. Well, speaking of not the only way to approach this problem, one of the point, uh, points you make in your blog post is that while it, the California plan may appear radical within the American context, there are plenty of other jurisdictions that are pursuing uh, similar kinds of objectives. And what are some of those, uh, those jurisdictions and how do they differ from, or how are they the same? Uh, how do they differ from California? Yeah, so, uh, so a lot of places 
a good number of countries um, and some cities and municipalities have similar sets of goals. Uh, and I would say going back to your original question about what the plan is um, and my contrasting plan with goals is that um, in, even in those places where the, the goals have been stated a little while longer, um, the, the meat and bones of the plans are just now starting to take shape in some places. So um, I think there's a shared vision that's common across a number of places. And, and some of the important places um, where this is, uh, where there are similar goals, of course, is uh, in British Columbia, um, um, but also the, the predominant, the biggest places are um, a number of European countries. So France and Germany and the UK uh, have similar goals. And in fact, the British government had a goal that they moved up to 2035 to be um, uh, just this earlier this year, I think in February, um, and had accelerated their timeline. Uh, a little bit distinct from that, though, are a number of major cities. So places like Paris and uh, London, um, but a number of major cities around the um, world, but predominantly in Europe, um, have also been um, doing something a little different, which is stating um, bans on internal combustion vehicles. Uh, some, in some places, it was initially just a ban on diesel vehicles um, in city centers. And the way that that proceeds is by drawing a cordon area that says no um, diesel vehicles or eventually no um, gasoline or diesel vehicles can be traveling um, within these uh, bands. And that's largely motivated off of concern about local air quality um, in polluted um, large cities uh, in Europe, where the air quality really is uh, worse than the cities in North America. And a lot of that has to do with their, their vehicle fleet. Uh, and so there's a distinction there with, um, because those are um, policies that are targeted to affect used vehicles as well as the new vehicle market. At countrywide levels, most places seem to have done something pretty similar to uh, the, the California proclamation and sort of targeting a phase out in the new vehicle market and leaving for economists and legislative analysts and um, people, detail oriented people to figure out, you know, how to, how to phase out that uh, giant stock of used um, uh, vehicles uh, as gracefully as possible. Now, one of the things that it strikes me is that if we're going to have this vision of, and you know, we're going to electrify the fleet uh, by 2035, 2040, whatever the date is, uh, it, the timing seems to is good because we see automakers bringing out models now that uh, you know variety of models within uh, of electric vehicles. Um, we're seeing you know battery prices going down. It's likely we hear that we'll see price parity with gasoline cars, maybe within you know three, four years. And so that's gotta be a, an important, what happens in the auto sector to make electric vehicles affordable with enough range, that's gotta be a key part of this, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. So if you mandate it tomorrow um, that every, you know, you have to have 50% or 100% of uh, um, electric vehicles next year, uh, the, human cry from the masses would be enormous because uh, if you want to go out there and, and get an electric vehicle, you still face a limited selection compared to the types of vehicles you can buy um, for different needs and purposes um, that are internal combustion. So I have, a, I have, a, I have three kids. Um, we'll be in the market for a new vehicle soon and have been looking for an electric car that seats seven. Uh, um, the, there's a real shortage <laughs> of uh, those options right now. Um, but I think that's changing rapidly right now. So, you know, if you want to get um, 
that type of vehicle, I think within the next few years, you're going to see a pretty dramatic uh, shift. And I think as it, goals like what Newsom um, did in California and, and, and like exist in other places around the world, you know, it's easy to look at them and say they're cheap talk and, you know, they're, you know, until there's an actual legislation behind them, which there are in a few places, um, but often they're just proclamations of intents. It's like, they're like Senate resolutions where we're declare our, our aspiration to do the following, but we haven't um, committed financial resources in some cases or established penalties um, uh, to the market if they don't comply. Um, it's easy to dismiss it and say this won't happen and, and um, the government will just back off of these um, uh, goals. Uh, but even so, I think as there's a critical mass of uh, governments declaring that their intention will be to have these aggressive policies, it does help light a fire under industry to say, if you had a car you were going to think about rolling out in 2028, maybe you want to move it up and get it out in the market in 2025, and you want to start to be serious about moving up your goals. The auto industry has stated a lot of a, more cars are coming online each each year. And if you look globally, there's really quite a, um, a mix of cars that are in the market being sold to consumers right now. But the automakers have also made fairly aggressive declarations about their intentions to electrify transportation in the coming decades. But they're not as ambitious as the timelines and they're not to uh, move to 100% renewable um, uh, in the or 100% zero tailpipe emissions and, and the types of timeframes that we're talking about by 2035. The industry is an industry where there's massive fixed costs, massive research and development costs. Um, the faster they have to roll out technology, the more expensive it is for them in terms of their bottom line and overall profitability. So I think the industry wants to move this direction, but they might not want to move as fast um, on their own accord as they will if they're, they feel that the, there's pressure coming from policy. Um, so I think there is an important interplay there, um, but without a doubt, we need uh, more vehicles, uh, more variety to be on offer for any of these goals to be achievable. Well, let's talk about that interplay between uh, auto, the manufacturing sector, the, the market and policy. Uh, is, could you foresee a scenario uh, in which the industry uh, rolls these uh, models out, so now they have the, the, the capacity to generate, you know, to build you know, millions of electric vehicles in a year, and it turns out that the market is much more receptive than we had maybe anticipated. The automaker says, okay, great, we're gonna invest the billions that are required to meet that demand. What does that do to policy? Do the policymakers back off a little bit, or do they say, hey, this is great, we're clearly on the right path, Let's even go push it a little harder. What's your take? Yeah, well, I, uh, I would guess more the latter uh, in most circumstances, but I would suppose it also probably depends on the policy instrument. So when you say go harder for something, if partly what they've been doing is throwing money at the problem, um, which is necessarily going to be part of, well, I don't know about necessarily, it is in practical terms going to be an important part of what happens as public investment, um, both on incentives for automakers, but also in helping to solve some of the infrastructure side problems. Um, to develop the necessary um, infrastructure to support uh, a heavily electrified transportation sector. Um, then if, it's, if, if the rollout is so fast that the demands on the public expenditure is actually catapult ahead of expectations, then you can imagine them dialing things back. But if it's a matter of like, 
largely we've set a mandate um, and uh, that kind of pushes the burden of compliance onto the market, um, then the faster things move, the more likely we are to ratchet up these standards. And I think that's kind of like the model um, uh, you see with something like uh, renewable electricity standards or renewable portfolio standards on the electric power side that um, policy aspirations sort of uh, have an interesting interplay with what the market's doing on its own accord. <laughs> and as solar and wind um, have uh, been deployed in greater numbers, then you see states or, or localities um, happy to ramp up their targets because they're easier to meet um, and, and they dial them back when things seem a little bit out of line. I mean, there are plenty of California has history with this. They had an electric vehicle vision mandate, uh, you know, 25, 30 years ago, um, and you know, said this is we're gonna we're gonna spur the market and we're gonna get this electric transition. Uh, and at that time, they were sort of largely going it alone. Uh, the market didn't deliver the cars they were demanding, and they simply kind of folded up uh, their regulatory requirements. You see something really similar in the U.S. Um, with advanced biofuel mandates, so we have a um, we have we have mandates for large quantities of ethanol to be produced from corn, and and the farmers can meet that demand. But then the ambitions of that uh, whole suite of policies was to move beyond that to more advanced biofuels that were actually much better in terms of the carbon cycle, where corn is, is arguably a, a net zero uh, winner <laughs> in terms of its its total life cycle emissions and the, the, the prize was always to get to these very advanced cellulosic biofuels and things like that. Um, and the market kind of never was in line to meet the goals. And then every time that happened, then the, um, the government just dialed back the requirements. But then industry started to think, well, wait, we don't have to meet these requirements. And if, we, if I step out and I make the investment and I um, um, meet the target, the the reward won't be there for me in the market because the EPA is going to rip the requirement out from under me because my competitors didn't catch up. So I think here it's, you know, a company like Tesla has shown that, you know, by demonstrating that they can be a successful business um, by many metrics and sell cars that consumers clearly do want, um, then they're collecting a number of subsidies at the moment um, that are quite substantial. Um, but they're also destroying, you know, uh, uh, you know, proof by example that that an industry, you know, a car maker can sell electric cars that people want, um, which gives the policymakers something to point to and say, hey, why don't you do this VW? Why don't you do this GM, etc. Uh, the your comparison to the renewable energy sector is interesting because it seems like in the last, you know, I don't know, two, three, four years. Uh, the costs have come down so rapidly, the rate of adoption has increased so significantly that in some respects, the policymakers and the regulators are being caught flat-footed. They're catching up to the technology. And is there a chance that that might happen on the transportation side? And I can think of autonomous vehicles, maybe Tesla brings something to the market uh, sooner. Uh, you can see it in maybe in a transit. We're talking about, we've interviewed uh, Canadian experts who say that, you know, uh, autonomous shuttles might be the last mile solution for uh, transit authorities, and those are not that far off. And are the policies and the regulators, uh, policymakers and the regulators keeping up, or is there a chance that they might get caught uh, behind as they did on the renewables uh, side uh, of it? 
I think it's I, I think the chance that policy is playing catch up rather than really leading uh, is is a, is a strong probability uh, in many of the domains you just mentioned. Um, it could, and if you look at the U.S. federal government, uh, obviously it's kind of moving backwards uh, during the Trump administration, um, uh, which is partly you know explaining California's attempt to, to push the envelope. Uh, a bit in terms of these aspirations. But I think the idea that policy could be lagging is, is um, a strong possibility, especially with autonomy, uh, where I think regulators just really don't know what to do with it. And they really don't want, once it comes to the newspaper headlines about this accident and that accident, where there's a fatality here and one there, um, the regu regulatory agencies just don't want their fingerprints uh, on those things. And I think they're going to be happy to leave as much out to industry as possible, um, which is essentially what they're already doing, um, largely delegating stuff to let states authorize experiments and driving um, now. But I think what well, you mentioned is a distinct possibility. Now, you mentioned a few policy tools, regulatory tools uh, in your blog post that could be used to speed up or facilitate the transition to zero emission cars. And one of them is, and I found this very interesting because British Columbia is currently, or will soon be grappling with the implications of trying to electrify parts of their economy like transportation. So you mentioned electrification, and that means, you know, that suggests that the uh, the electrical infrastructure, the power grid, the utilities, all of those have to be working in some, not maybe in sync, but they have to be prepared for widespread electrification. Are they? And what, how much of a constraint might that be if they aren't? Well, economists like myself who study uh, electricity markets, among other things, have been beating the drum for um, better pricing schemes in the electricity market for decades uh, to modest uh, a success uh, in the world. Um, and I just think the most obvious thing to flag is that if you're going to have massive electrification of transportation, you can't have people charging at any hour of the day whenever they feel like it without um, receiving some signal from the electricity grid about when it's a expensive time to charge and when it's a cheap time to charge. Uh, if you look at um, most states and utilities, um, have some form of an electric vehicle pricing um, alternative where there's a, uh, essentially a basic, what we call time of use rate, where if you have an electric vehicle, you can go on the electric vehicle charging rate and you get a very different price per kilowatt hour of electricity at different times of day. But that's a far cry from the ideal of something that fluctuates in real time and sends a smart signal um, to charging infrastructure to, make, to send the signal to consumers um, that uh, charging at this moment of the day is really expensive because it turns out, you know, all the solar went off, um, uh, phased off unexpectedly in some area, or there's a natural gas plant offline somewhere. So it's extremely expensive this hour. Um, and uh, I think there's a good body of research showing that you've got to get a lot closer to that real time pricing um, to get some of the big gains. Um, so I think there's a lot of potential and it's stuff that we know how to do. Uh, is the good news. And it's stuff that's um, feasible to do because uh, the smart meter infrastructure is rolled out in many places and we know how to do it. And there's some beta testing of that. So San Diego Gas and Electric um, down in Southern California has a pilot program they're doing right now where they're passing through um, much more real-time electricity rates into EV charging infrastructure. 
and then can see how responsive drivers are to when they charge their car. And if you move around the load a lot, um, and EV uh, electric vehicles will charge at different times of day um, in response to prices, um, then I think that'll, that'll be a huge um, uh, benefit. And if we don't have a system that's sending those um, price signals, uh, then it's a recipe for disaster uh, because it would require just massively more uh, uh, electric power capacity to be built, um, uh, which is quite expensive. Um, it'll just raise the cost of, of doing the electrification dramatically if we don't have rationalized prices. One of uh, my areas of research lately and reporting has been on evolving electrical utility business models because there are a variety of technologies that are transforming the way utilities do business. Uh, one of them certainly is, uh, you know, renewable distributed energy. Everybody's worried about how their platform, their, their network is going to integrate uh, distributed, you know, rooftop solar, uh, that sort of thing. And the other is all of these different technologies, some of which you, you alluded to, that allow for real-time pricing and, and different market design and so on. But just how to do it is not always self-evident. Every jurisdiction seems to be different because they have you know, different, mix, different power grid, different mix of generation capacity, all of that kind of stuff. Um, but you also said this, we kind of know how to do this stuff. So uh, is it just a matter of you know, sort of bringing resources and, and brain power to, to, to bear to figure this out and get it done? Or do we need new technologies? Or just how you know, tough a nut is this to crack? I think my sense is that the biggest barrier at this moment is consumer acceptance. Uh, you know, you and I have thought a lot about how we might structure electricity prices, but the average consumer who's um, has ne has has never thought beyond the idea that they get a monthly bill and that they have a, a price that they're charged every uh, <laughs> per unit of electricity, and they they don't think beyond that. Um, and uh, you know, they're are adverse outcomes that are quite possible. There are shocking bills that you can get. Um, and and uh, so my sense is that there's a lot of resistance that's partly based on just uh, consumers not being familiar with um, these systems um, and also not wanting to deal with it um, and not wanting to just be like, oh, I have to look up what my price is. And, and so I do think that the future of that has a mix of happy consumers uh, and a more rational, efficient uh, grid that can integrate with transportation um, probably hinges to a large degree on the, the, the level at which we can automate uh, all of these things. So if your car simply plugs into your socket and chooses the best time to charge in communication with the grid, given that you plugged it in and um, either they know through you know um, data mining and simulation or because you actually punch in. I go, need to go to work at 8 a.m. That's the next time I need to drive. Please efficiently charge my car between now and then. And if that's as simple as touching a button that says 8 a.m. Uh, the next morning uh, when you plug your car in and then you walk away from it, if the car is doing something smart in conjunction with the grid and consumers trust that, um, the more it's automated, the more people are going to be willing to um, uh, do what's efficient, um, and the more that there requires their attention and manual manipulation, I think the greater the resistance will be. Um, and so I think really looking ahead to what do we want the grid to look like in 2035, um, I think we want to be thinking about 
smart investments and good prices, but, but equally about making the whole use of it seamless and consumer friendly. And I think a lot of that's about automation. Uh, in your blog post, you also talked about financial incentives, different ways to incent uh, consumers to buy zero emission vehicles. What are some of those ideas? Yeah, so, um, you know, there, there are a number of different ways you can do um, uh, incentivize and, and mandate or push uh, the market towards greater electrification. And, and one model for this is to simply use these regulatory rules in the background that put all the burden directly on industry to find a way to comply, right? And that's what the cor corporate average fuel economy standards in the US look like and the, and the Canadian system uh, is pegged essentially to CAFE and, and mimics that. Um, and within California for electric vehicles, um, we have a, what's called the zero um, uh, emissions vehicle mandate, which says that just puts a, a similar regulatory burden on the automaker says X percent of your sales this year, this model year have to be electric and you figure out how to make that true. <laughs> and the way that they do that is then they say, well, you know, we want to sell, you know, if we need to sell more Nissan Leafs, then Nissan drops the price of Leafs uh, and it may have to raise the price of the other cars that it sells. Um, but it's sort of the burden is put on the industry to figure out how to change its prices in order to get consumers to buy the right mix of vehicles. But the government could be doing directly um, those prices itself. Um, it could be actually putting taxes on inefficient vehicles or just all internal combustion engine vehicles eventually um, and putting subsidies um, on the um, uh, electric vehicles. And, uh, Canada had a, a, a fee-bait program uh, like this around hybrid vehicles uh, when those were rolled out. Um, uh, uh, and there was, interesting, there was a background tax that automakers paid uh, on um, inefficient vehicles that, that funded um, subsidies that um, the government uh, claimed uh, <laughs> and um, uh, presented directly to uh, consumers. Um, and that, that moves the needle, certainly, in consumer choice, because you're giving people a few thousand dollars here and there. And the reason I mentioned that and emphasize it in the blog post is, to an economist, those two different systems, as different as they may seem to somebody else, can be designed to be doing exactly the same thing, whether the government's writing checks and collecting taxes, or they're simply pushing the regulatory burden onto the industry. In economic models, those can actually turn out to be completely the exact same thing in terms of their incidence on the market. But what's different is um, if you construct a tax scheme, it gives you an immediate way to raise revenue if you'd like. You don't have to give out subsidies that are, that are, that are exactly offset the, the um, taxes you bring in, although you can, um, but you can configure the system so that it raises some target amount of revenue. And I think that's an important issue um, here because uh, we need public investments um, uh, in order to achieve other things that facilitate electrification. So we need more charging infrastructure. Um, we need to roll out um, uh, some grid improvements. Uh, we, and in all likelihood, at least as stated in California, there's a great desire to make sure that, um, that uh, any, any push towards electrification doesn't create undue burdens on lower income um, groups of uh, households who may already be having um, the fewest transportation options available to them uh, today. And the easiest way to deal with that is going to be to have subsidies and to, to be able to, to direct money uh, their way, but that money has to come from somewhere. Uh, and so thinking about 
achieving some of these goals, not through kind of background regulations, but through direct taxes and um, subsidies um, may turn out to be an important strategy. James, thank you very much for this. This is fascinating because I, I really enjoy talking about the, not so much the, the goals, aspirations, strategies, and so on, but how do we get there? And I think it's important for consumers and voters to understand some of these issues because they're very tough. They're not always easily solved. And the, the first policy or regulations we try may not work as well as we want them to. They may need to be modified over time. And if we understand the issues better, I think from my point of view, you know, that will that we'll help policymakers and regulators do that job better. So thank you very much for these insights. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it was a lot of fun being here. Thanks for having me.